Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Six hundred and thirteen. I had six hundred and thirteen rules to follow. Can you imagine that? Can can you even understand how many that is? And and, and I, I knew every one of them, and I followed them, mostly. So there I am sitting across from Jesus. And he looks at me and says, Nicodemus, it's not about the rules. <laughs> I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, but essentially that's what he's saying. It's, it's not about the rules. Not about the rules. Look at this from, from my perspective. I'd seen him come in the day before, and, and, and he had turned the temple upside down. This is the place, mind you, that, that I'd spent my life preserving. So you can imagine how much I wanted to have a talk with him in a secluded place at nighttime. How would you feel if someone Someone said to you, someone you respected, they tell you that everything that you'd dedicated your life to had missed the mark completely. You're a fool. That's how you feel. So I said something to him. One rule that seems too good to be true, because it was. Believe he's the Messiah. Believe he's the one that was promised. And, and he said it, like he just glazed over it like it was some simple thing. And then went on talking about good and evil and I'm thinking wait go back go back to where you took what was so complicated and made it not complicated my whole life was in those complications my my religion was in those complications making sure to follow the details of the laws. I made sure that every T was crossed. I thought that is what was going to save me. 613 laws. I was wrong.
It was love that saved me. For God so loved. Good morning, brethren. Imagine for a moment being in a wilderness, way out in a wilderness. Of course, there is no communication whatsoever with anyone, but you're in a group of people. And there is no civilization anywhere within sight. Suddenly, a whole bunch of deadly snakes come out and start biting people, you included, and many others with you. You look around, and you see people you know, and you know well, getting really sick. Some of them are dying. And in the midst of that, someone tells you that the leader of your group just raised a pole with a bronze image of a snake on it. And you hear that God told him to do that, and that whoever looks at that pole will not die. Would you believe that? Let's assume you do. And as you believe that, and look at that pole, suddenly your body starts reacting differently to the venom of a snake. Your life is spared. And soon you're well. You see, what I'm describing here actually happened to ancient Israel during their exodus. In fact, the caduceus, the modern symbol of a medical profession, finds its origins in that event. Of course, it's been modified and changed over time, as well as secularized and, as you would expect, paganized with the influence of the ancient Greeks, including Asclepius. But you might wonder, what a strange event that occurred to the Israelites way back then. What was the meaning? Well, our reading for today explains that meaning. Let's read it together in John chapter 3 and verses 40, 14 to 21. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in will in, in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, and he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is a judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. I think we can see here that the symbolism is vivid and clear. What saves us 
It's not rules and regulations or religion. What saves us is not anything that we can do. What saves us is the very love of God expressed in the incarnation, in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God with us, who was crucified for us. He took our sins and made them his own. And he died for us so we can have life in him, eternal life in him. Well, let's review this passage and understand the symbolism of what occurred way back thousands of years ago to the Israelites as they were led by Moses out of Egypt toward their promised land. <clears throat> let's read verses 14 and 15 again. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Well, it seems to me like this is a very clear explanation of that symbol of the serpent in the wilderness. But what do they do? have in common? What do they, the two, the, the serpent in the wilderness and Jesus Christ have in common? What spared the Israelites from death was not something that they did. It was God. It was God who had provided for them and their willingness to accept that from God, to, to look up to God, to look up to what God had done and to trust God. Likewise, <clears throat> what can spare us and grant us eternal life in Christ is not something that we can do, but God himself and our willingness to accept the very precious gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ. But why the snakes to begin with? Well, just like us, the Israelites sinned and they rebelled against God. And just like them, we're all dead in our sins. We've been poisoned by sin. And that poison is actually killing us spiritually. We all used to walk in the ways of Satan, which is the way of disobedience, the way of rebellion, the way of self-centeredness, the way that says, I am the center of the universe and everything around me has to serve me. We have followed after our own lusts. But the message here is that we have hope. Just as Israel, the Israelites had to trust God, and that trust was manifested and demonstrated as they looked up in their suffering. They looked up toward that pole where the bronze snake was, was placed by Moses according to the instructions of, that God gave them. So we must, we must also trust in God and look up to Christ who was lifted up or better yet crucified for us. It is the only, the only that God has given. The only thing we really need to do that we are expected to do is to accept that gift that cost him so much 
and look up to him in full trust that in him we are okay. Let's look at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I think we're all very familiar with this statement, with this verse. But notice that. But first of all, do we realize that these are the words of, of Jesus Christ? And notice here, God loves the unlovable. For God so loved the world, it says. That world is certainly not a lovable world. It's in fact enmity against God. So here we find God being declared to love the unlovable. There's nothing that God receives back from expressing his love. There is nothing he gains by pouring out that love. But God loves by giving and giving of himself. He holds nothing back, not even himself. That's what makes Satan's lie so incredibly horrible because God is not holding back from us anything that is good, including himself. The only thing that God basically holds back from us or invites us to reject is what destroys us. God loves us not because he needs to. God loves us not because it's beneficial to him. God loves us here, notice, he gave his only begotten Son. He gave it of himself in the person of God the Son. For whose benefit? Our benefit. So that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So God loves us not because it benefits him, but because it benefits us. He wants us to have eternal life with him in Christ. He wants, as elsewhere, he makes, the scripture makes it very clear, he wants to share his very glory with us. He has declared through Jesus Christ, as Jesus prayed to the Father after the Last Supper, Jesus said, Father, I want that the world know, I want the world to know two things, that you send me and that you love them. That means you. That God loves you even as God loves his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Check it out. Don't believe me. It's in John 17. He wants to share all things, including himself, with us. But then you may wonder, what about our behavior? Do we have to do something to, to be able to receive all that? Is that all depending on our behavior? Is that how we often we are taught that if we are good, <clears throat> it's almost like a Santa story, isn't it? If we are good, we receive a good gift. If we are bad, well, not quite so. Well, of course, the behavior is important. I'm not here to say that it isn't. But God doesn't love us because we're good. Because we're not. God didn't love the righteous. It doesn't say, for God so loved the righteous. It says, for God so loved the world. God loves you. 
regardless of the fact that you are a sinner. God loves me, regardless of the fact that I'm a sinner. God loves all of us, despite what we have done. Let's read verses 17 and 18. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world may be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, this is a very important statement because so many people are mistakenly thinking that God sent Jesus Christ to judge and condemn. But he didn't. It makes it very, very clear here. God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but to save, to save us. He is our Savior. Not what we may or may not do. He is our Savior. What we do might make a difference in this term. If we refuse to believe, if we refuse to accept His gift, because maybe we think, well, it's not worth anything. Well, then we are judged by our own choices. We are judged by our choice to reject the only Savior that we have, the only begotten Son of God. It's almost like we're in that wilderness way, way back in the days of Moses, in the days of ancient Israel. As we're coming out of Egypt, going to the Promised Land, which, by the way, symbolically represents our calling out of the slavery to sin toward our Promised Land and eternity of life in Christ, through that wilderness of life, and in that wilderness, people were bitten, poisoned by sin, and killed by sin, and in that poisoning, it would be like refusing to look at Moses' snake. Not because the snake is, is an idol or because the snake has power in itself, but it was a demonstration of trust in what the Lord had provided. Do you want to find life? Is a message. Look up to what God has made available for us. And God has made himself available for us in the person of the Son of God, in the person of Jesus Christ, Messiah, our Savior. You see, God is very rich in grace and in mercy. He has great love for all of us. And yes, God is a very righteous and just man. The, the, the grace that we're talking about, the love that we're talking about, does not, is not cheap. It does not take away from the seriousness and the gravity of sin. In fact, in and by itself, the very sacrifice of Jesus Christ demonstrates that the horrible nature of sin and the incredible cost of it. But notice that it was before we even knew him that he sacrificed himself for us. It wasn't because we were particularly righteous or because we did anything particularly good. No, before we even knew anything, he sacrificed himself for us. 
He made us alive in Christ, raised us up with him. And in all of this, all he asks is that we would believe him, his word, trust him, in other words, and in faith accept his gift. Notice, even in the time of the Exodus with Moses, all that those people had to do is to look up to what God had provided. And what do you and I have to do today? To look up to what God has provided. All he asks us is that we would accept his precious gift. But what about those who do not accept it? Let's read verses 19 and 20. This is a judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Well, first of all, let's understand this metaphor of a light and darkness. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking of darkness as something that extinguishes the light. In reality, darkness by definition is the absence of light. Wherever there is even a single ray of light cannot be darkness. Think about it. The spiritual darkness that this is talking about is the absence of a light of God. And why would that absence be there? Because those who reject the light love the darkness, the absence of God rather than the presence of God. Now why would anyone want darkness? Because they love sin more than life. And I think we've seen it many times. We've seen it all around us many times and we've seen it sometimes in our own life. When we make excuses for something that we know is destructive for us, but then we say, ah, well, I like it. I want it. Have you ever eaten something that you know is bad for you, but you really wanted to taste it? And knowing that it would hurt you, knowing that it's bad for you, you still went ahead and ate it? What about smoking? Or worse? Those people that reject that light, they actually want to sin without being guilty of sin. And so, in that pretense, oh, sin is okay, they reject the light because they will be judged by the light. And so they choose darkness so they can hide and turn things around, calling good what is evil and evil what is good. And in so doing, demonstrating really that there is almost no limit to the human corruption and how we corrupt things. And we are quite capable of turning things upside down. But it's not all bad news. Verse 21, But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. See, if we respond to God's grace, then what happens? Let's say that we are not rebelling against that gift of God, that we are not rejecting it, but instead with 
with all our heart, we say, yes, Lord, I accept that. And here I am. Isn't that response a response of gratitude and of worship? The response, of, uh, the human response to God's grace, when the God's grace is accepted, leads to worship. It leads us to bow down before the majesty and the awesomeness of God. And because we have been justified by His grace, then we repent. We acknowledge, you see so many times people think that repentance is a lot of work because now I need to really put some effort in overcoming my sins. And I've heard it so many times, brethren. I've heard it so many times. People putting all their energy and all their strength and say, I have to overcome this sin. I've got to try harder and harder. And the harder they try, the harder they fall. And so they get on their knees and they pray. God, please help me. Give me the strength that I need to overcome my sin. Like I can just see the Lord looking down and shaking his head and say, one day you will understand. And when that day comes, their prayer will change. And instead of saying, God, please help me out, instead of making themselves that the knight in shiny armor to be conquering all these things that need to be overcome, and God is a sidekick giving him the strength and the weapon that they need so that they can fight the battle, the battle, maybe they will realize and understand that God has already fought that battle and has already won that battle. But what he's asking of us to do is to be totally honest with ourselves and with him especially. And so the prayer changes, you see. And as we kneel before the presence of the Almighty God, we confess our inability. Our inability to love the way He does. Our inability to be like Him. And so we confess, Lord, I cannot do it. But I thank you so much for your gift because you in me can do that. And so we practice that truth, that truth that is not up to us. It is not our strength. In the Old Testament, God reminded the people of Israel, that it is not by, by might, it's not by power that God will build His temple, but by the Holy Spirit. And then once again in the New Testament, it is not by might, not by power that God is building the church, His people, His temple, but by the Holy Spirit, by God Himself at work in us. And so we practice that truth. We actually live our faith because we have received that amazing gift from God. And in that gift, then we can now confess our inability and surrender to the work that God is doing in us. Not I, but the Lord in me. Not you, but the Lord at work in you. He has overcome. And He will overcome in you as well. But just like in ancient Israel, people were to trust God and look up to Him. And in the New Testament, God has revealed Himself to us in Jesus Christ. And He is asking us to trust Him and look up to Him even in that moment, in that prayer on our knees, we don't look at ourselves. We look up to Him. 
Lord, I can't do it, but you in me can. And I know that you will, but it's your work in me, not my own. And so in that we seek the light. We seek the light because we want to see, we want to see clearly, we want to be in that light. And we're not afraid of it anymore. We are not afraid of it because we know that the very person who sits in the seat of judgment is the same person who gave his life for us. To redeem us and to pay the penalty for us. But even more so, who lives for us. And we live and we are alive in him. Once again, we can look up to him and say, Lord, I surrender. Not I, but you in me will win. And God never loses. And we don't need to be afraid of a light. So we go to the light because we thrive in that light. God's grace is truly immense. He's not out to destroy us. But he wants to bless us beyond our wildest imagination. He has done all that is needed. He has offered us a precious and eternal gift. The question is, will we accept it? Or maybe another way of asking that question would be, are we going to choose life? So, brethren, as we approach the season, when we remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion and his resurrection, let us remember that our state would be just as desperate as that of the Israelites who were bitten by the poisonous snakes. We're poisoned by sin that is killing us. And yet the good news is that the Lord himself has been lifted up for us. And as we look up to him, we realize that he has taken our suffering and our sins and died for us. Which in and by itself is, my, is a mind-boggling truth that the very one who is the source of all life was willing to experience death for you and me. It's truly mind-boggling. But that's his love. So let's look up to him. Let's look up to the source of our salvation. And let us appreciate his gift and in full trust place our very lives in his hands because he will never let us down he will never fail us he wants to share all things and all glory with us and yes including you he wants to share it all with you god bless you because you are sons God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are His child, God has made you also an heir. What great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are.
I've heard a thousand stories of one thing. Think you're like, but I've heard the tender whispers of loving the dead of night, and you tell me that you're pleasing, and I'm never alone. You're a good, good father. for choosing us. Thank you for the plans you have for us and for working all things according to the purpose of your will. As we place our hope in Christ, may our lives be for the praise of your glory. Amen. <laughs> 